we're going to pick up this thing in, in Romans here with Paul at Romans 15, uh, but it's connected to 13 and 14. And so remember as we read this that Paul has kind of expounded God's wondrous grace and mercy in Jesus. And then he, he calls this church, and the church in Rome, just as kind of introduction, like the church in Rome is a church made of Jew and Gentile. And what's curious about this church is that it was founded by Jews who in the diaspora had made their way to, to Rome, and then they were all expelled from Rome. And then the church was then like led by... So, Imagine this church having a whole generation of people who founded it, started it, and then they're like sent away, and the people who they raised up to become Christians in this church now have to take over ownership and leadership, and then all those people come back. And like what that might have been like for a church, the conflict, the, the melding of things, and then you have the whole reality that they're Jew and Gentile and have a whole way of seeing the world and faith that they are now confronted with as they lead this church together. It's a mess. And yet, Paul really wants to make clear that because of the gospel, this church should then learn how to do this. And it will be a mark of the way of Jesus upon them as they do it. All right. So remember that as we uh, jump in here. Hear God's word this morning from uh, Romans 15. I don't know if you stand here, but let's stand for the reading of God's word. We, Paul says, including himself in this, who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in one accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I do play a lot of golf, and um, there was a statistic, and you can take statistics with a grain of salt because most of them are slanted and jaded and all that stuff, but there was a statistic that came out that only 2% of golfers ever break 80, and then only 15% of golfers ever break 90, and only 30% of golfers ever break 100. And if you've played golf, you've kind of You kind of experience the gambit of all of those things, right? Uh, But whenever I play golf with someone, it's very, very evident very quickly when one golfer is stronger or weaker in terms of like that ability to break certain scores. And if you hit a couple good shots in a row and you're playing with a golfer who's struggling to hit a couple good shots in a row, inevitably they start to apologize. Like I feel like they feel bad about like slowing you down or impeding your, how good you are at golf. But if the statistics are true, the reality is, is that pretty much everyone sucks at golf. Like, and it's hard to be good at golf. And so there should be this camaraderie of souls when it comes to golf that we all kind of like struggle 
when it comes to playing. Um, but invariably, I feel pretty good when, like, I know I'm not the one slowing the group down. And when I play with a stronger golfer, there is immediately this, like, tension that builds up inside of me that makes me feel like, oh, man, maybe I'm the one that's going to slow this group down. And there's this embarrassment. And I've played with golfers who, when they play with certain golfers who aren't as good as others, they do get to this point where that disgust ends in, like, an eye roll, right? Have you ever been so disgusted, irritated, frustrated, that your response to someone is an eye roll? Now, Romans 14 and 15 is about this idea of love and freedom. The threat to this particular church is division. And so Paul rests application of how we offer our bodies in view of the gift of God's mercy and grace, how we are to offer our bodies because of Jesus, the reality of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the reality of a Jesus who rectifies, right, who makes right those who have the problem of sin and death, the practical advice for the church to be the church is that we are to live in love and freedom and not judgment, and disgust. The weak exercise judgment against the strong, and the strong exercise disgust towards the weak. Now, point one this morning is, who are the strong? We're going to focus our attention on the strong today, but well, notice Paul himself considers him strong. We who are strong, he says. The strong in this context are those who in this church are free to eat meat. Meat of all different types and meat offered in the context of worship in a pagan world to idols. The strong are free to eat that meat. Their consciences aren't pricked by meat being offered to idols, to Apollos or some other god or goddess of the Roman pantheon. Remember how it would work is a farmer or, or a, 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 a someone who was selling their product at the market or a, a, a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, they would all offer their things before the gods or goddesses with the hope of being blessed in the offering. And so some in the church, in this Roman church, would have been offended by the idea of eating such meat, and others would have no problem doing it at all. Paul himself considers him strong, so he would have no problem doing such things. The strong are free to enjoy those meats. The strong are free to enjoy a good drink. The strong are free to avoid participating in Passover and the feast that the Jewish Christians, remember again the story, the Jewish Christians have moved back into Rome, And they might have been very tentative to uh, reject the history of their faith. In other words, many of the Jewish Christians would have practiced Passover. It would have been a regular repertoire. Even as Christians, they would have engaged in all the feasts and festivals of Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or whatever they might be. And some, Gentiles maybe, but also even some Jews would have been like, no, we're not going to do that anymore because of Jesus. Right, the, the strong are free to not celebrate Passover anymore or in any of the other Jewish traditions or festivals. They're free in contrast to the weak. 
those Christians in the church who tended to promote these non-essentials as essentials. And there's all sorts of ways this plays out for us today, which we'll talk about. Now, the attitude of the weak, Paul writes in verses 2 and 3, is the head shake. They pass judgment. The weak are not uh, loving the strong when they condemn them in their hearts for the practices of, or beliefs that they, are, that they think are not actually in accord with the Bible. Now, remember, weak and strong isn't like a hierarchy here. Like you have strong and weak, and everyone is battling to be more strong. Paul uses these more as saying these are just the way things are in the church. There will always be strong and weak. Now look at the attitude of the strong. Now we're going to take this from chapter 14. We didn't read this, but verse 1 of chapter 14, As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Imagine a house party where the weak are welcomed into this party and there's food laid on the table and someone provocatively might have a pork dish on that table or a dish that had been offered to idols that they bought from the market and then they, in this context of a meal, provoke a question to the weak Christian or brother who doesn't want to eat this about eating these things. Like here, Paul is saying, don't throw your strength around to be provocative. Don't say, I want to enlighten you around this table and this meal. Look at verse 3 of 14. Again, I didn't read this, but it's in your Bibles. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Despising. Why? Because they're trying to limit my freedoms, man. You can't limit my freedoms. Disgust. I can't believe you're so weak. And it ends in an eye roll. Why? Why does it end that way? Well, self-justification. Now, don't miss this. All of us in this room all of us who are sitting around listening to Phoebe read this letter in the Roman church, are tempted to validating our lives by what we do. That's why I get so worked up on the golf course. It's also why sometimes I don't mind being around a weaker player, because it justifies me. When I took my wife, Danette, out the one time, actually, she did just play this last year, so she's played golf with me two times, but the first time we were dating, and I took her to a little short course, and we were playing behind these little old ladies. And every shot she hit went right, right, right. And by the third hole, she's watching these old ladies tee off in front of her, and she is in tears because she can't hit it straight. She's like, why can't I hit it straight like those old ladies? And so whenever I tell this story about us playing golf together and her ending in tears, many people think it's because like I berated her for her bad golf, which I didn't. It's because she was so upset that her, her, her validation felt affected because she couldn't do what those stronger players, those old ladies, could do. The strong are free to do all things, but they're obligated in their freedom, indebted in their freedom to do what? Love. This is the second point that Paul is getting at in these passages is how should the strong 
Love the weak. Verse 13 of chapter 14, do not make them stumble in their faith. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of your brother or sister. This is a military engineering term. A stumbling block is an obstacle, something that's decided, uh, that's created to impede progress, to bring the enemy to ruin so that their progress might be impeded. So Paul says the strong should love the weak, not by blowing up the bridges of their faith, not destroying the supply lines to their faith. No, Paul uses two words, stumbling block and hindrance. One happens by chance. The other happens intentionally and is more serious. How do they do this to the weak? Remember, we said the weak have sensitive consciences. He says they're grieved by what you eat. They are distressed. We could talk about drinking here because all of us kind of get that image. It's not the best image always, but it is. So someone sees you who enjoys libations outside somewhere having a drink, and you, they have their consciences pricked by such things. They might stumble over it. I remember my Gami, that was my grandma, she was... She believed in this hierarchy of callings when it came to somebody in ministry, like... Like a minister was like a minister. We aren't that way, by the way. If you, you, we bleed and get angry at our kids, and we're not like that. But my Gami kind of thought that. And so when I told her after, now before I was a minister, I, I would have a, an occasional drink. And then after I became a minister, suddenly, like for my Gami, like that was offensive. Like that can be the thing. In, in Rome's case, it was pork on a table urging someone to eat pork, urging someone to eat meat offered to idols. It could be that. It could be a whole host of other things. But the strong, using that, cajoling, in fact, their freedom of conscience. Hear what Karl Barth, who's a theologian, he says the following. No triumphant freedom of conscience. Now, that, notice that word triumphant. No triumphant faith all things justifies me. If at the moment of my triumph I have seated myself upon the throne of God and am myself preparing stumbling blocks and occasions of falling instead of making room for God's action. Gone then are my faith and my freedom and all my knowledge is though I knew nothing. In other words, Paul is saying to us, and Bart riffing off Paul, do not destroy the work of God in your brothers or your sisters. We who are strong can quite easily think it's really not that big of a deal. But Paul says it has the power to destroy the work of God. And it, at the very minimum, that should give us pause. Paul says in chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Essentially saying to this church, you have a credit card of love with no limit, and your job in this life is to see if you can max that credit card out. Max out, Paul says, the debt of love. Paul is saying here, the strong are to max out their debt of love, not on themselves, and on their freedoms, but on their weaker brothers and sisters. 
If you decide to max out your debt of love only on those like you or those you like, then you are using your power, Paul says, not for love, but for destruction. Again, it is more important to be loving than to be proven right. When we invest in our freedom over and against our weaker brothers and sisters, we are letting what we regard as good to possibly be spoken of as evil. The good of freedom for all of us to eat, to drink, this is a good. Paul himself says, I am this way. I live this way in this freedom. A freedom to handle nuance and like gray areas, maybe theologically. Freedom to not have everything put into a category of black and white, right or wrong. If we invest in this freedom at the expense of everyone else, then maybe when we do that, our freedom could be criticized as wrong. The good gifts of God might be seen instead of good as evil. Doug Moo, a commentator, says, Paul is warning the strong Christians that their insistence on exercising their freedom in ceremonial matters in the name of Christ, remember, not participating in Passover because I'm now in Christ, not eating meat offered to idols because I'm free in Christ. Emphasizing that can lead those who are spiritually harmed by their behavior to revile the legitimate freedom that Christ has won for them. The the strong, in other words, can so indulge in their freedom over and against their weaker brother or sister's consciences that it drives the weak where? To forbid even more things that are free. It's shocking, right? Our, Our consciences, for we who are strong, might be so clear that we're free to look on some theological idea with more nuances. Our consciences aren't pricked, but then when we thumb our nose in disgust at our weaker brothers, and in protection for their faith, they are driven further to revile legitimate freedoms. So the legalist, at least at some level, is further entrenched by their more antinomian, anti-law brothers and sisters. Next, Paul says, bear with the failings of the weak. Carrying the weaker brother's burden is how the strong maximize their debt of love that they owe to another believer. Love isn't toleration. Toleration is never quite free from disdain. It puts the weaker person in danger of being overpowered. Whoever is merely tolerated is not really accepted in their weaknesses, but is treated in such a way that he is expected to be what he cannot be. Instead, Paul says, bear with them in love. Agape is, the, is always more than tolerance. It's also more than condescension. Christians accept, verse 7, our brothers and sisters. We help bear their burdens just as Christ took our burdens upon himself. Strength, in other words, then, is a privilege that carries responsibility. It means indulging the weaker brothers or sisters' tender consciences at the expense of their own preferences. Notice that Paul says, the strong ought not to please themselves. This means accommodating the request of others 
rather than prioritizing their own predilections or opinions. Each one of us then should consider and try to please our neighbor. Each one of us. There is, in a sense, both strong and weak here. But the strong should defer their needs and wants and bend them towards the benefit of neighbor. We accept them, not to change them. Right? If you've been married, you know this is one of the maxims of marriage. Like, you don't get married to change your partner, and you don't, in marriage, attempt to try to change your partner. Instead, you press in to love your partner as they are. We take burdens. We provide help. But the help is grounded first in accepting, not changing. We are, Paul says, to build them up. At the base, the way the strong in the church are to build up is to value what? Fellowship more than food. Food is central, right, to any fellowship event at the church, at my church. Whenever we have a party, what do we have? We have food, lots of it, sometimes really good food. Here, I'm sure it's no different. But And sharing food, having a common meal, this is one of the things that makes Christianity what it is. Jesus gives a meal to explain what his death was all about. It symbolizes, but it also is meant to bring the church together. When, when Paul says in 14.15, do not destroy for the sake of food, he means our perspectives about food and drink. Their fellow believers, the weak, are identified, according to Paul, as the work of God, the Christian family. So the strong cannot attack the weak, even though the food is clean, edible, good, because they belong to God and are the work of God, the church. And this is building up, is built on the foundation of God's work in creating a new people. James Dunn, the commentator, says, to belong to God's building means living out life as part of that building. Mutually dependent on God's grace, mutually independent on the interlocking relationships by which the building exists and grows. All food is clean, but it's still wrong when one's choice of eating or drinking or celebrating causes another believer to stumble, to trip up in their faith, where their very faith is put into jeopardy. Now let me add this is true of politics as well. I can talk about politics because I'm not your pastor. (laughs) You may be free to vote for whatever party. Both candidates and systems, by the way, are sinful. Both fall short of God's intention. So when you know another in Christ's body stumbles over your vote, then maybe it's best to live out your conscience and be more reserved and quiet in the way that you do it. Now let me keep this before you. Disfellowshipping over these things is exactly what Paul is talking about here. And if statistics are true, this is the thing we are dividing over, and Redeemer, you know this, because you've seen it, just like my church has seen it. We are destroying fellowship for the sake of votes, for the sake of comfort, for the sake of not having to exist in a space, a room, around a table, because they think that's okay. Because they voted for them. Why do we do that? Because we want to justify ourselves. 
Because we feel, for whatever reason, it is our job to stand up for the weak, the vulnerable, depending on who we think the weak and the vulnerable are. So we champion that. Because not to do so would be equivalent to us heresy at the worst, heterodoxy at the best. Paul wants to take the oxygen out of this blazing fire. He says, live according to your conscience. Liberty and sensitivity are both something that must arise out of our faith and are both something that must be humble. Q. Kendrick. Let your principles match your practice without fear or self-condemnation. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything, according to Paul, that is not from faith is sin. At the center of this command is Jesus. First, the last point here, why are the strong to do this? Because Christ did not please himself, but Christ bared our reproach. Our reproach. You see, to make his argument for why the strong should let go of their freedoms for the weak and not stare at them in disgust, and also, by the way, for why the weak should not stand in judgment over the strong who use their freedoms in such a way, Paul appeals to the Jesus story. The strong should not think that giving in to the weak is incompatible with their strength because Jesus didn't do this. Jesus didn't seek to please himself. Their tolerance to not eat or drink is not some sort of giving over to error, but instead living out of the Messiah's self-giving service. Jesus as Messiah didn't please himself. Jesus as king did not consider his status as excusing himself from the work of serving. He didn't think that his strength entitled him to advantage. I want you to see that Jesus in his strength did what? What did he do with his strength? His strength enabled him to empathize with and to himself become weak. And that's what your strength is for. You're free, but your freedom is meant to be used for what? Laying that freedom down to bear and build up your weaker brothers and sisters. So you bear with your weaker brother and sister's sensitive conscience. You don't use your strength as an occasion to win, to flex. You don't use your strength to shame. You don't use your strength to tear down. You are free and your freedom allows you to walk untainted in a world full of sin in order that you might lay your life down to bear the reproach alongside your brother or sister. Don't turn your, don't turn your Christian liberty into some kind of like Epicurean fantasy. Don't say, drink and be merry. We have a big gospel. You are free from that legalism that once swallowed you, but now you're wandering in the fields of antinomianism. Your freedom is not freedom to sin. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 69.9. The insults of those who you insult have fallen in on me. In this psalm, the Messiah is speaking. He's the suffering righteous one who is mocked and despised by the watching world. And he meekly, 
awaits vindication from God. This is meekness. Meekness is strength bridled. Why? Because it knows that he doesn't need to use his strength to destroy because his hope is in God and God is the one who will vindicate him and make it right. You see, Paul taps into, according to Michael Byrd, the gospel story that Jesus did not shirk from the shame and horror of his crucifixion in order to achieve atonement for God's people in the same way if the weak are insulting the strong or even speaking evil of their good freedom, the strong are not to respond in kind. You hear that? The strong should not shrink back from the need to show patience even to argumentative weak members. The Messiah's own example should lead them to be self-giving, not retaliatory, not to repay insult with insult. Paul says this is what Scripture is for. Redeemer, this is what Scripture is for, so our imaginations might be kindled about how we might live our life together in light of what Christ has done. It should give us hope and encouragement and endurance. One theologian says what's at stake is not merely the interpretation of the past, but is clearly here the role of memories in understanding the present and envisioning the future. Israelite scriptures were battlefields for rival groups bent on securing the victory that would preserve their respective identities. If that doesn't describe our current moment, I don't know what does. The scriptures being used by rival groups bent on securing victory to preserve their own identities. You see, this whole thing about strong and weak is very much like our world right now. Paul says, no, scripture is a vision for a united people with a shared messianic identity, one that looks humble and meek, one that has a shared experience of the Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Scripture's meant to unleash our imaginations so that we might learn how to live out the ethic of King Jesus. And that's one of love. Bearing with each other. United in the reproach that we share because we're united to Jesus. This is what hope looks like. Where there's accord. That's the word Paul uses. There's consensus and concord where it matters. And all those non-essentials, there's freedom. Freedom. And we bear with and love one another in those freedoms. And then he last says, so welcome one another, strong and weak. Welcome the strong brother or sister. Don't shake your head and judge them. Welcome the weak friend or neighbor and don't roll your eyes at them in disgust. Instead, what? Make room for them. Attune to them. Give your face to them. Be present with them. Knowing their disagreements, knowing the ways that you look at certain things in a different way, move towards them in love and offer your face for them. Make room for them. That's what glorifies God, Paul says. More than doing the pious things you think please and glorify God, like avoiding this and avoiding that, living in accord means more to Jesus than that. Than keeping days, not taking or eating that thing. 
More than enjoying that gift and thanking God for it, more than even drink, eating and drinking in faith, living in concord is more glorifying to God than that. Welcoming the strong and the weak brings God glory, Paul says. Welcoming the strong or the weak puts skin on for the church. It's countercultural in our world today. Now, I want to end with this. I have an elder. His name's Charlie. Charlie's been at my church, I think, about six years. He came to my church after his wife uh, died of, uh, from cancer. His daughter and son-in-law have been a part of my church since I've been there over 12 years. And so Charlie moved to Albuquerque, and he started going to City Press. Now, his church in Georgia was way different. It was a PCA church, but it was way different than City Press. We had, like, lots of differences over certain theological things. One of these, just to be vulnerable with you, was view of creation. Now, in his church, and in his presbytery, in fact, like, if you are a literal six, uh, seven-day creation person, you might not get ordained. And in his church, it was very difficult to even, like, think of something other. Now, when he came to my church and he learns that I'm a framework guy, what that means is that does not mean we don't think that this could be done in a literal seven days. It can be. God can do what he wants. But it means we, a framework person is like, that's not really the point of Genesis 1 to 3. Like, they're not trying to answer that question like we Westerners are. That was a point of contention, right? One that might cause disfellowshipping. But guess what? Charlie and I both learned to move towards each other, to give attunement to each other. Now, this is one of just a thousand different ways that my weaker brother, who I would say is a weaker brother based on his ways, his conscience is sensitive and easily pricked. And remember, I'm not saying that as a moral value. And me as a stronger brother who has more freedoms... Like we have learned through self-giving, sacrifice, turning towards each other, listening to each other, pursuing one another when we think there might be difference. Over all the gambit of things that are happening in the PCA right now where we might differ, we're friends. I love him. He loves me. I trust him impeccably. And he trusts me. That's the glory of the gospel. That's what the gospel can do. Has nothing to do with me. Has nothing to do with him has all to do with Jesus pressing into his life and what he has for us. Let's pray. God, help us as we uh, think about this idea of being strong or weak. Lord, I know I have used my occasion of strength to sin against brothers and sisters in pride and disgust thinking I have some kind of corner on truth and freedom. Forgive me. And I know there's many weaker brothers and sisters here who have stood in judgment over the strong. Lord, in truth, we as your church here, even at Redeemer, have used tertiary, unimportant matters I should say non-essential matters to fight and argue and divide. 
And that shouldn't be. Forgive us, God. Remind us that you have bared with our reproaches the plethora that we have. You've moved towards us in love. You've given your life as a sacrificial offering for all of our foibles and failures with these things. So help us this morning to find our rest there and then out of that be animated to bearing with one another. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.